0: Thank you for joining us for this podcast from Abundant Life. We pray that you will be blessed and encouraged by this word. Now, here's Pastor Scott. Let's jump right into the word in Luke chapter 22, verse 54. And I'm going to do a lot of reading today. And I really, I struggled with this. And I asked God, seriously, Lord, seriously, because I like to talk. It's going to cut down my talking time. But we believe the Bible is the most important thing to hear in the world. Amen. So I want you to try to listen this morning in Luke 22:54. 54. The Bible says, so they arrested him and led him to the high priest's home. And Peter followed at a distance. The guards lit a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat around it. And Peter joined them there. A servant girl noticed him in the firelight and began staring at him. Finally, she said, this man was one of Jesus' followers. But Peter denied it. Woman, he said, I don't even know him. After a while, someone else looked at him and said, You must be one of them. No, man, I'm not, Peter retorted. About an hour later, someone else insisted, this must be one of them because he is a Galilean too. But Peter said, man, I don't know what you're talking about. And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. At that moment, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Suddenly the Lord's words flashed through Peter's mind. Jesus had told him, before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you will deny me three times that you even know me. Verse 62 says, and Peter left the courtyard weeping bitterly. The guards in charge of Jesus then began mocking him and beating him. I want to talk to you this morning from a sermon simply titled, Think About Peter. Pray with me. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for using people who mess up. Thank you for loving us beyond our sin. Thank you, God, for your word, which gives us an example of who you are and how you deal with your creation. Lord, I pray as we look to your word today that you'd anoint my mouth and my mind. Help me, God, to say those things that would honor you. Help us, God, to hear things today that would increase our faith and increase our love and our passion for you. Your love for us is manifold and unconditional. Help us to love you back in Jesus' name. Amen. Think about Peter. Now, if you talk to the average pastor in America and you ask him who his favorite Old Testament person is, most of them would say King David. And there's good reason for that. King David wrote a lot of passages in the Old Testament. But it's not for the volume of his writing that most preachers love King David. It's for the volume of his mess up. It's it's not for all the good stuff that he did. It's for all the bad stuff that he did without God giving up on him. Why? Because we know that none of us are perfect. Well, I say we know. I hope that all Christians and every church girl in the world would get it through their head that the only perfect person in the world is God. It's not you. It's not us. It's not the preacher. It's not the pope. It's not the bishop. It's not the apostle. The only perfect person is God. And the Bible says that we have this book, these stories for our examples, so we can learn from them. And I am so happy that the Bible is so practical. It's a realistic picture of imperfect people walking with God. What if everybody that served God, what if all the stories about the people of God, all of them were just perfect and they never did anything wrong? Do you know we couldn't relate to that? So most pastor favorite Old Testament guy is David because he messed up so much, but he loved God and God held on to him. And God continued to use him, and he would mess up, but he would run back to God. And I've told you before, the Bible marks an extreme difference between the first king of Israel, who was King Saul, and he was the pretty boy. He was head and shoulders taller than everybody else. I'm talking about, he probably wasn't even 6'2". This dude was probably, well... He was a short people. He might be 6'2", 220 pounds of twisted steel and sex appeal. This guy had it going on all day long, and he looked good. He talked good. He sounded good. He looked like he was built for the role. He was the first king. He was the people's choice. The second king comes along that replaced Saul was King David, little short guy, not as easy on the eyes, all kinds of messed up, not the gifted, big, strong battle axe warrior that Saul was, but God honored David in his reign more than he honored Saul in his reign. And one of the biggest reasons why was because Saul was stiff-necked, but David was rubber-necked. Saul, when he set a plan in action, he stuck with it. It reminds me of a coach of the Florida Gators. And I've been a Florida Gator fan my whole life. And most people that are Florida Gator fans love Steve Spurrier. I have never liked Steve Spurrier a day in my life. Too arrogant. Just way too arrogant. I remember one time at the end of the game, they were just destroying Georgia. He went for two so they, could, so they could have 50 points and win by, you know, a ton more than a ton less. And they asked him, why'd you go for two when you were already up by so much? He said, well, we never put 50 on them. I thought it'd be fun. And he was just arrogant like that. But see, that arrogance cost him in the title game when they were playing in the mid-90s when they played Nebraska. And he had such a horrible scheme in the first half. He had a scheme where they were leaving nobody in to protect the quarterback, and he was running six receivers, five receivers and a running back out on the fly and leaving nobody in to block. And at the end of the first half, the quarterback had already been sacked half a dozen times. They were getting destroyed, and they asked him, do you plan on making any adjustments for the second half? He said, no, my game plan is solid, and if the players will do their assignments, we will win. And I thought, that sounds like him. Getting destroyed, your system's not working, but you're stiff-necked and you're going to stay with it. And that's the kind of guy Saul was. Saul was stiff-necked. No matter what God said, he was going to keep going his way. It wasn't that he messed up more than David because he didn't. David did more dirt than Saul did. David had more willful disobedience than Saul had. But David was not stiff-necked. David was rubbernecked. Anytime David would catch himself walking the wrong way, and God would tell him, he would spin right back around to God. And that's the true picture of repenting. When you repent is when you're faced with some information that says the direction you're going is wrong, and you turn around and you walk back to God. I don't know who you're more like today, David or Saul, but I can tell you stiff neck ends in defeat, and rubberneck ends in victory. So most preachers favorite Old Testament dude, would be David, and without a doubt, most preachers' favorite New Testament guy outside of Christ would be Peter. Why? Exact same reason. Because Peter was a train wreck. Peter was a train wreck. He was a walking mistake factory. He was the guy that they invented the phrase, open mouth, insert foot for. He, he was the guy who thought uh, after he act. He always did before he thought about it. But the reality is, same type of dude as David. His heart was soft unto the Lord. And I want you to know, it's not about your ability to be perfect that will determine how much you love God. That that, that can be done through strength of willpower, and religious people can do that. What really determines how much you love for God is how often and how quickly are you willing to turn back to him on the other side of falling down. And I love the practicality of the Bible, that God would give us such an up-close and intimate look at the life of our champions of our faith who failed, and Peter failed big time. I'm going to give you some quick facts, some background contextual information about Peter. By trade, he was a businessman, a fisherman um, specifically, not just a guy going out fishing, selling a few fish at the market. He owned multiple boats, him, his brother, their partners, James and John, who all ended up following jesus had a thriving fishing business he was brought to jesus by his brother andrew who originally was one of john the Baptist's disciples he's the one that made the great confession in john 6 when jesus said who do people say i am and and some of the disciples said elijah some people said different john the baptist and when jesus said but who do y'all say i am and peter stood up and said you're the christ the son of the only living god and jesus said flesh and blood had not revealed this to you but my father which is in heaven and Peter makes this great confession, but he's doing great things. But then he goes on and he denies Jesus three times. As Jesus is getting ready to be beat and tortured and crucified, all of the disciples are scared like cowards and hiding and running. We went last night to a movie uh, in Fleming Island called Risen, and it's a pretty good deal. I mean, most of these shows based on Jesus, most of these shows based on Christianity. Obviously, they're not going to follow the Bible verbatim, but it was a pretty good deal uh, about the look of learning Jesus through the eyes of one of the Romans who crucified him. And Peter didn't show up to the cross. None of the big, strong, bold disciples showed up to the cross except John and a few of the women. So Right before the crucifixion, Peter denied Jesus three times. Jesus had prophesied to him. When Peter was telling him, when Jesus was saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be beaten and crucified, but on the third day, I'll rise again. Peter said, I'll go fight with you to the death. The rest of these might stay behind, but you can count on me. And Jesus looked at him and he said, this very night you're going to deny me three times. Peter was bold beyond his ability. Don't make that mistake. Peter was boastful beyond his depth. Don't make that mistake. But that's not the end of Peter's story. He also went on after his recovery to preach a sermon at Pentecost where the Holy Ghost fell and 3,000 people got saved. He also went on to fulfill the prophecy when he told Jesus that I'll follow you anywhere. I'll go through anything for you. And and Jesus eventually told him, yeah, you're going to go through some stuff for me. Actually, one day people are going to carry you to your death the same way they carried mine, through crucifixion. And Peter's love for Christ had grown so much by that point that even though he couldn't pray for an hour in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus asked him to pray, he went and prayed for 10 days solid in the upper room to bring about Pentecost. And he, he changed. There, there was a change in his life. Failing changed him. Falling down changed him. And he loved the Lord so much before, during, and after his change. And that's what the church needs to see. We need to stop judging people we need to stop thinking we know everything about people you see somebody serving God actively you think they love the Lord you see somebody failing in their walk with Christ you think that they don't love the Lord as much listen Peter loved Jesus the same before it in the middle of it and after it I hope you can see that with me this morning he loved God so much at the end of his life when they said they were going to crucify him for his belief in Jesus he asked to be crucified upside down because he didn't feel worthy to die the same way Jesus died. But let's look at the text this morning, and I just want to Bible study with you a little bit and try to pull some things out. In verse 54 of Luke 22, the Bible says, So they arrested him and led him to the high priest's home, and Peter followed at a distance. That's a big mistake. Same mistake. Where, how did Peter follow? At a distance. This is what the devil wants every true believer to do. The devil doesn't care how close Non-believers follow. If you come to church every time the doors are open, but you never read your Bible at home, you never say prayers at home, you don't praise and worship God at home, if you come to church every time the doors are open and you're on every team, every committee, every volunteer board, but you're not truly born again, the devil doesn't care how involved you are. But if you're really saved and you love the Lord, he, he can't take your salvation from you. So he wants to distract you and he wants to make you follow at a distance. I've told you so many times about the cutout principle. I love the Nature Channel. It's about one of the only good things on TV. And I told you, I always pull for the big animal. Uh, I, I'm not the underdog guy. I don't look for Rudy to beat up Ray Lewis because, trust me, that don't happen uh, ever. And when the lion is chasing the zebra, I pull for the lion, even though it's not a big battle. But I just I just want the lion to do his thing. And the lion could just, he, he's faster. Than the zebra. He's stronger than the zebra, and if he wanted to, he could just strike up the cymbal the, the music and just charge into the whole pack of them, reach out with giant paws, snatch up a couple of them, and walk off. But that's not how the lion does it because God didn't design him that way. And God said that the Christian's enemy is the devil and that the devil walks around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. So here's what the lion does, and you can see it on nature shows. He doesn't run after the whole pack. He waits until one of them gets cut out of the herd. It's called the cutout principle. And the lion stalks, and he waits, and he stalks, and he waits. And I want to tell you something. The enemy is stalking you right now. And he's waiting on you right now. And guess what he's waiting on you to do? Follow at a distance. Because when you follow at a distance, you have been cut out from the herd. And when you get cut out from the herd, that's the one that the devil comes to attack. That's when the lion goes after that one zebra. Doesn't have to be the smallest one. Doesn't have to be the weakest one. He's already stronger than the biggest one and faster than the fastest one. But he just hunts this way, and it's the same way the devil hunts for Christians. So if you don't hear me say anything today, hear this. Don't follow at a distance. Get in the middle of a bunch of Christian friends. Get in the middle of Bible study. Get in the middle of knowing that you're going to be here and you're going to sit where you sit and you're going to show up where you show up. I tell you what, I would be right in the middle of the pack because if he just ever decided he was so hungry he had to come dive on everybody, they can pick off the ones on the outside before they get to me. Peter made a mistake. He was following at a distance. Verse 55 says the guards lit a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat around it. And Peter joined them there. Another mistake. These are guards who have arrested Jesus. These are the same guards who are going to mock, spit on, beat, strip naked, and crucify Jesus. He's hanging out with the wrong crowd. That's the whole message right there. Listen, if you're hanging out with people that don't love Jesus more than you do, you got the wrong crowd. I'm not talking about people who give lip service to how much they love God while they do dirt all week long. That's a lie. The, the, the Bible, Jesus said to that crowd, why do you even call me Lord, but you don't do the things that I say? He's hanging out with the wrong crowd. They lit a little fire, and they're sitting around, it. and Peter joins in with them. Why? Because he feels too bad to join in with the real Christians because he knows that he is in the midst of failing. Verse 56 says, a servant girl noticed him in the firelight and began staring at him. Finally, she said, this man was one of Jesus' followers. Oops. Oops. How about that? Now, I know it never happened to any man in this room, but let's just say you get all messed up, you get all sad, you get all backslidden, you get all depressed. You know, you, you, you drive to the other side of town, go, go to some bar, some strip joint, some package store. You're standing there waiting in line to do your dirt, and then a church member shows up and says, Hey, Elder. What's what? Huh. <laughs> How you feel now? Now you're a little jammed up. Now you got to be like, no, that's my twin brother. Uh, we, we favor, we look alike, but they ain't none of me. And he's in the wrong spot, and he's hanging out with them, and, and, and he gets exposed. Boy, there's nothing worse than having people that don't love Jesus call you out on your dirt. There's nothing worse than having people that don't love God the way you love God know that you're living as shabby as they're living because he's joined in with their shabbiness when he should be promoting the glory of his Savior. Verse 57, Peter denied it. Now, woman, I don't even know that man. Now, here's the thing about me. I've I've done bad things in my life before, during, and after salvation. People, people make a big deal. They're like, oh, I did all that before Christ. You've done plenty after Christ, too, if you want to be honest about it. All right, we're still imperfect. We're still a work in progress. But he said, I don't even know him. I want you to take hope in this. I, well, this is my story. Maybe it's not yours. I hope it is. Every wrong thing I've ever done since coming to a Christian, none of it parallels to this. I've never looked anybody in the face and said, I don't know him at all. Matter of fact, can't stand the man. I mean, Peter was way out there at this point. He was off, he was off his edge. And I want to tell you this morning, if you don't stay in the middle of the pack, if you don't follow Jesus closely, you can get off your edge too. Because if Peter can get to the place where he's not just backsliding, but he's denying even knowing who Jesus is, if that can happen to him, it can happen to any of us. In verse 58, the Bible says, After a while, someone else looked at him and said, You must be one of them. All right, the the whole twin brother thing didn't go over with him. The whole no, that's just you know my cousin we we favor didn't go over with him. He said you got to be one of them, and he said no man I am not! Exclamation point! He is trying with everything he can to say I don't know him. Like I said, I've done some things I wish I hadn't done as a Christian, but I've never gone so far as to argue with somebody about whether or not I even know who. Jesus is. You ought to take hope in that and realize that if Peter can make a comeback, anybody can make a comeback. Verse 59, it said about an hour later, someone else insisted. This must be one of them because he's a Galilean too. He's up there hanging out with all these Romans with his little Galilean accent. Like, one, one other version says, your speech betrays you. You sound just like him. And he goes on. In verse 60 and says, man, I don't know what you're talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. I'm going to read it to you. i want to read that same account in Matthew's gospel, in Matthew 26, 73. Listen, Listen to the insight it gives here. A little later, some of the bystanders came over to Peter and said, you must be one of them. We can tell by your Galilean accent. Listen to how low Peter had sunk. By verse 74, he, Peter swore a curse on me if I'm lying. I don't know that man. And immediately the rooster croaked. You get out away from Christ. You start following Christ at a distance. You start hanging out with the wrong people. You get in a crowd of people that don't mean you any good for Christ. They're going to start putting your faith on trial, and you're going to start finding yourself in a position to either have to get up and leave, or, no, I'm one of y'all. I'm just just here to do dirt with y'all. Peter was so adamant in trying to convince these people that he didn't know who Jesus was, he basically said, I swear to God, let God strike me dead if I even know who that man is. I've done some stuff, but I never denied Christ at that level. What am I telling you? There is hope for all of us. In Luke twenty-two, sixty-one, 61, back in our text, at the moment the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Suddenly the Lord's words flashed through Peter's mind. Before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you will deny three times that you even know me. So here's Peter following at a distance. He's not doing what he should be doing. He's not following the Lord the way he should. He's hanging out with people that don't mean him any good. He's hanging out with people that are causing him to compromise his faith. He's hanging out with people that are doing things that he shouldn't be doing at all or associating with. He's at a distance from Christ. Christ is in the process of being tortured. He's way over there. But how many of y'all know the eyes of Jesus reach everywhere? You can't follow God so distant that He don't see your junk. You think you do your crap alone, God sees it all. You think you do your dirt alone, God sees it all. You think you get so far away from God that he's just gonna leave you alone? Nope, across that whole courtyard. And when they locked eyes, Peter knew. Everything I swore to, I've denied. Every claim I made, I broke. Every vow of love, I have shattered. No matter how far away you get, the Lord still sees you. And he saw Peter, and he called Peter out, not with words, but by bringing to his memory what he said. Verse 62 says, and Peter left the courtyard weeping bitterly. Why did he weep? Because he really loved the Lord. He found himself in a place he shouldn't be, doing things he shouldn't do, but he did really love the Lord. I need you to understand that today. So many church people want to point fingers of condemnation and criticism and act like somebody who's backsliding and doesn't really love the Lord. There's a whole group of false theologians and liars and heretics that say backsliders lose their salvation and die and go to hell. You know, how much backsliding? Didn't read your Bible today? That cancels your salvation? Told a lie to, to your boss? That cancels and Listen, God says he's married to the backslider. God loves us, and he loved Peter, and the look that he gave Peter was not a look. See, if he would have scowled at him, Peter could have stiffened his back and said, what? But the eyes of Jesus are eyes of love. And it broke his heart, and he left weeping bitterly. And then began the worst night of human history where they began mocking and beating Jesus. How guilty do you think he felt? How guilty do you think Peter felt when he didn't do anything to show the Lord that he loved him? Incarcerated, don't show up. They're stripping him down about to crucify him. He's hanging way back, not only hanging back, but hanging with the people that hate him. Not only hanging back, but hanging with people who are trying to get him involved in doing stuff that won't bring honor. How guilty. He has professed all this love. He has been the vocal leader. He's been up front. This was a platform minister who now is out there on the wrong side of where he needs to be. And let me tell you something. And Everybody knew it. Small town. That's one thing. See, people act like the West Side's a small town. It's, it's okay for small, but you—you know—you got places you can hide. There was nowhere to hide in this part of the world. Everybody knew everybody. Some of y'all come from places like that. This was that place. Everybody knew what Peter had done. Everybody knew he was the leader of that rabble of followers. Everybody knew that he made all these bold claims. Everybody knew that when they came to take Jesus, Peter drew his sword and cut off the high priest servants here. Everybody knew Peter was supposed to be big and strong all day long. And now he's hiding and denying. and He's guilty and he's filled with shame. What happens to Christians at that point? What happened to Peter at that point? He probably felt there was no place left for him. In the Lord's work, he probably thought, I've blown it. I can never show my face there again. I've blown it. There's nothing left for me in ministry. And I've been counseling people for 35 years that have felt that exact same way. They do dirt and they do dirt and they do dirt and they keep coming back and then they do dirt and they keep coming back. But when they get caught in a massive exposure, they just throw their hands up and say, There's nothing left for me now. Everybody knows. What I've done, there's no place left for me to serve God. Listen, to real Christians, we never thought you were all that to begin with. You you think because exposure happened in your life that now we figured out. But I hear it all the time. I can't believe that Pastor so-and-so was actually living a double life. Well, if you read the Bible, it says everyone's a hypocrite. The Bible says don't trust anybody but Jesus. The Bible says that we are all frail and weak. I'm not saying that there's not a standard, there is a standard. But if you let backsliding keep you from ever front sliding again, you're just playing into the hands of the enemy and you're playing out soft like a punk. The Bible says if you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. You need to rise up in your fainting and say, you know what? Yeah, I messed up. I screwed up. It was on me. I did it. I was right there in the middle of it. Everybody saw it. I'm not trying to hide it. It is what it is. I got dirt. You got dirt too. But I love him anyhow and I don't care what you think about me. I know I love him and you can say whatever you want to say. You're not going to keep me off Jesus. I wish that's how people thought. But I've seen people leave church. And I've seen people hide. I've seen people cower in shame. People who never did what Peter did. People who never stood and swore repeatedly, I don't know him. Profess curses on their life. If they even knew him. That type of failure... Causes people just don't want to go back to their own way and, listen, be left alone. Just want to go crawl in a hole somewhere and not have to deal with that Christian thing anymore. That's why in John 21.3, Simon Peter said, I'm going fishing. This is after what just happened. He hid. He was following Jesus at a distance. He denied Jesus three times. He knew he had blown it. He blew it in front of people that he had led, in front of people that he had worshipped God and served God with. And he said, I'm going fishing. Now, the Greek tense does not mean I'm going to go on my lunch break and try to catch a fish. He said, I'm going fishing. He used the verb that's a continual tense. What he was saying is, I'm going back to fishing as a way of life. I'm going back to who I was before I met Christ. This Christ thing didn't work out for me. I bet all my chips on him he's dead. I bet all my chips on him and I failed him. I told the whole world that I was down with him and I was his number one follower, but I abandoned him. There's no place left for me in this religious world, so I'm just going to go back to doing what I used to do. Listen to me, child of God. Every real Christian can go back that fast to doing what you used to do. Peter said, I'm going back. Well, that's bad enough. But bad goes to worse because he's still a leader. He's still anointed by God. He's still gifted by God with leadership because the Bible says the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. It doesn't matter how many times you mess up. God doesn't change your gifting. It doesn't matter how many times you mess up. God doesn't change your calling. He's still gifted. He's still called. He's still anointed. He said, I'm done with this preaching thing because he was fishing before he became a preacher. And now he says, I'm just going to go back to my old way of life because it was easier, it was simpler, and it wasn't about all this icky I feel on me right now for failing. He could go get drunk as a fisherman anytime he wanted to. He could say, I know him, I don't know him, to anybody he wanted to do. He was his own business owner. He was the senior partner with his brother Andrew over a business that encapsulated their two boats, James and John's boats. They were wealthy fishermen in a small little town that were the best of the best, and he said, I'm, this, this Christianity thing, too hard, I failed at it, I don't want it anymore, I don't want the ridicule, I don't want people looking down their nose at me, and I don't want to feel like this anymore. So I'm going to go back to fishing. But he was a leader, so the rest of them said, we'll come too. Forget the whole thing. Let's just cash out. Let's just go back to what we were doing before we met Jesus, pick up where we left off. I'm going to tell you something, that's what the devil wants out of every real Christian. Every real Christian, once you shame yourself, once you do something that you know you shouldn't have done, the devil wants you to cast your chips in and leave. Just, how can I go back there? What if they find out? We already know. Kidding me? I have people tell me, I've had so many people tell me, well, don't get me wrong, Pastor, I don't want you to think I'm perfect or anything. I just want to throw something every time somebody says, please don't don't embarrass yourself by telling somebody, oh, I'm not. don't don't mistake me, I'm not perfect. Nobody ever was that mistaken. Nobody. Your children ain't that mistaken. Listen, everybody on the planet knows that you're not perfect. They know I'm not perfect. But the devil wants you to cash it in and to be done thinking that you can't go back now. What will they think? Well, they will think that they done stuff too. And if God can forgive them, then he can forgive you. One of the early lessons Bishop taught me when I was steeped in legalism and when I had my own hard line views, us four and no more, we're the only ones going to heaven. We were talking about a pastor one time, and he was telling me all this dirt that this preacher done. And I'm like, wow, you know he ain't saved. And Bishop looked over at me and said, how do we know that? I said, well, you just said he Blah, 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 and blah. I mean, you just you just drove the bus over him nine different ways. Parked it on his head and shot him. I said, I'm just going off what you said. Now. He said, no, you said he's not saved. I didn't say he's not saved. How do we know he's not saved? I said, because all that stuff he's done. He said, well, what about all that stuff you've done? Are you saved? Right? Some of y'all can't help at all. Y'all just staring at me. Listen, I'm preaching better than y'all staring at me. We got to get it in our mind that failure is not final. The devil wanted him to think failure was final. Give it up. Go back to who you used to be. Go back to what you used to do. Listen, he didn't have no success, though. He said, I'm going fishing. Noted fishermen in the area. Big time, big baller fisherman. Multiple boats and a crowd full of poor people. So they said, we're coming too, because you're the leader. Don't drag people into your dirt. Help people. Don't hurt people. So they went out in the boat, but they caught nothing all night. I'll tell you something, one thing I'm sure of. If you're truly saved and you try to go back to what you used to do and what you used to be, you ain't going to enjoy it much. Oh, there's pleasure in it for a minute, but the pain in it's worse. You're not going to have the success in it you used to have. Here is... A professional fisherman. Now, see, I can tell you, I've been out on some fishing trips and and caught little to nothing, non-keepers, little little, little trash fish. But as a professional fisherman throwing nets in a small lake that they knew like the back of their hand to catch nothing, that was a miracle all unto itself. In verse 4 of John 21, after after they had left preaching, went back to fishing, caught nothing, unsuccessful, Real Christians can't be successful in the world. Verse 4, at dawn, Jesus was standing on the beach, but the disciples couldn't see who he was. He called out, fellas, have you caught any fish? Basic thing, you know. Brother David does a lot of fishing. You see somebody come up on you. You've been there for a while. They're like, how are they biting? You doing any good today? Basic question. Not that deep of a question. Have you caught any fish? No. They replied. Then he said, Jesus said, throw out your net on the right-hand side of the boat, and you'll get some. Now, that's got to sound ridiculous to professional fishermen. They don't know who this is yet because Jesus has died and rose from the dead. They've already seen him a couple of times in his resurrected body, but it's always different, and it always catches them off guard. But, you know, backslidden folk who've left the Lord to go back to their old way of life, not even confident in their own craft anymore, Going to let some stranger tell them how to fish. They did it. So they did, and they couldn't haul in the net because there were so many fish in it, verse 6 says. Now this is something. They fished all night, couldn't catch a fish. Now that they've dropped a net on the side of the boat that they weren't thinking about, they've caught so much they can't even pull the net in. One gospel writer said it was so heavy the boat began to sink verse seven then the disciple jesus loved that's john john doesn't like to identify himself by name but he's called throughout scripture the disciple jesus loved john another professional fisherman partners to peter said it's the lord why did john know it's the lord because there was nobody closer to jesus in his earthly ministry than john John is the only disciple that did not abandon Jesus. John was the only disciple that was at the cross with Jesus' mother and some women. All the rest of them left. John was the one who was always on the Lord's hip. John was the one who leaned on the Lord at the Last Supper. John knew the voice of Jesus better than anybody. It's a good message in there. I don't have time to preach it, but let me tell you something. The dude with the microphone doing all the upfront, loud talking, leading, gifted, and anointed, not always the one that's closest to the Lord. I believe there are people sitting in pews that love God way more than preachers ever will. I believe there are people sitting in pews that are closer to God and know the voice of God way more anointed in their love for God than microphone platform people ever will be. Peter might have been the upfront one with the microphone, but John was the one who knew what the Lord really looked like. John was the one. Listen, don't think that you got to have some type of pulpit ministry to be close to God. John was in the background, but John knew Jesus. He said, it's the Lord. When Simon Peter heard it was the Lord, he put on his tunic for he had stripped for work, jumped into the water and headed to shore. The other stayed with the boat and pulled the loaded net to shore, for they were only about 100 yards. There's a good message in there. Why are they still in the boat? It resurrected Jesus 100 yards away. This failure, Peter, the only one, Desperate to get to the Lord. Let me tell you something. Whether you're on top of your Christianity, starting to struggle, or flat out busted, when you see Jesus, you better run to him. In verse 9. When they got there, they found breakfast waiting for them, fish cooking over a charcoal fire and some bread. Now, how funny is that? Jesus coming back from the dead. Got a cup of fish in his pocket. I don't think he had fish in his pocket. I think he just told the fish, get in the fire. Kind of like on Seinfeld when George was trying to convince his parents to get far away from him and move to Florida. He said, they got dolphins come right out of the water on the sidewalk. You can pet them. I believe the fish just came right out of the water, jumped. That's a funny show. Jumped into fire. These guys out fishing all night long can't catch anything. Jesus shows up with what they were trying to get. There's a four-hour message in that. You're trying to get everything you think you want for yourself, and he's already got it. He's already sitting down with it, and you're out there trying to get it. They're, getting, they're looking for fish because they're hungry. He don't only have the fish. He's got the fire and some bread. They were going to fish all night long, hope to catch one or two fish, and then have to go about making a fire. Listen, they didn't have charcoal lighter back then. They didn't have the little click fire stick. These cats had to make fire. They didn't have bread in their pocket. They were out in a boat. Jesus had what they wanted, and he had more than what they thought they would ever have. Verse 10, Jesus said, bring some of the fish you have caught. That's an hour and a half message right there. Do you realize God doesn't need us for anything? Does not need us for one thing single thing but because he loves us and he cares about our emotions and he cares about our servitude and he cares about our sweat and he cares about our love for him he allows us to offer him our stuff and to mix our stuff in with his stuff even though he don't need it he don't need our money he don't need us to have a church right here he don't need us to show up and talk about him he's God with or without us but he wants to involve us in his thing. Get involved in his thing. He wants to let you. Verse 11. So Simon Peter went aboard and dragged the net to shore. There were 153 large fish. And yet the net hadn't torn. There are people who have written a book about 153 fish. Non-significant Non-sign. I've told y'all, stop trying to overanalyze every word in the Bible and get the big point. Why 153? Because it's more than 152. It's a big number. And it was more than enough to tear the nets, but the net didn't tear. Because when God does something, it doesn't create pain. Y'all are not getting me. If they would have caught half this amount of fish without the Lord, their boat would have sank, their nets would have ripped, and none of the fish would have came in with them. But because God was involved, no pain. What's the Bible say? The blessing of the Lord make one rich and add no sorrow to it. If the people you're hanging around bring you sorrow, if the activity you're doing brings you sorrow, if what you're investing your life in brings you sorrow, it is not God. If it's tearing stuff, it's not God. The net didn't even tear. Supernatural net protection. Verse 12. Now come and have some breakfast, Jesus said. None of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Now, in, in the original language, they knew it was the Lord. It's not an emphatic statement. They were pretty sure it was the Lord. They, they, they felt strong that it was him because what they saw happening. But, but they didn't want to ask him, is, is it really you? Because they could tell by what was going on. Even though their eyes couldn't actually get it all together, they just knew by what was going on. You ought to sense the presence of the Lord in your life. You ought to be recognizing God showing up in your situation. You ought to have your ears tuned and your eyes opened to where Christ is in your life. Verse 13, then Jesus served them bread and fish. Two-hour sermon right there. I don't have time to preach it. Why in the world would the king serve the subjects? Why in the world would the carpenter catch the fish for the fishermen? Why in the world would the Messiah who had just, listen, it's not like he didn't have a whole lot going on this week, all right? He just purchased redemption for every human being that would ever live. He just bore the weight of the sin of the whole world on his body. He was just stripped down, beaten naked, hung on a cross between heaven and earth to give his life for anybody who would believe in him. He had just taken the keys of hell and death, and let captivity captive. He had just gone down into Abraham's bosom, into paradise, and released everybody from Hades up into heaven. Different Bible study. Much longer time to take, but he's been busy. Say busy. Busy. But what did he do? He not only got the fish, got the bread, made the fire, but he served them the bread and the fish. The grammar's bad. It's not my favorite song, because I have to get past the grammar in my mind. But the words, even though grammatically incorrect, the feeling behind it is true. Can't nobody do me like Jesus? Now, you realize that's a double negative, which means anybody can, but don't focus on that. Can't nobody do me like Jesus. Can't nobody do me like the Lord. Come to me in my backsliding. Let me involve my life with his ministry. Prepare good things for me and serve me. I call him the king and me the servant. and He's always serving me. If you start following the Lord, you'll find out. You can stop complaining about, I'm the only one that ever keeps the nursery. I'm tired of being the only one that shows up for choir on time. I'm tired of being the only one that helps do. Listen, he does so much more for us than we could ever do for him. We couldn't repay him back in 10,000 lifetimes. Our God is greater and better and kinder and more awesome than anything you could ever imagine. Verse 14, this was the third time. Jesus had appeared to his disciples since he had been raised from the dead. You know, the Bible says that there were over 12 times that Jesus appeared to people. I told you all before, so many people think that it was signs and wonders and miracles that grew the first church. It wasn't signs and wonders and miracles that grew the first church, other than the miracle of resurrection. It was a bunch of people walking around saying, have you heard? He's alive. Jesus, the, the carpenter, he's alive. He really is the Messiah. Jesus is the real deal. Witnessing grew the first church. Declaring who God is grew the first church. And if that's what grew the first church, why are churches now so desperate for supernatural signs and wonders, miracles and wild stuff happening? Because that is somebody else doing it while we watch it versus us going out and telling our neighbors he's alive. That's the two words that grew the first church. And that's the only words that are going to grow any church. Is that he is alive. He'd shown himself to him. A couple times. This was the third time. Verse 15. After breakfast. Jesus asked Simon. Ouch. Say ouch. Simon. Has not had this conversation with the Lord yet. See this is one of them daddy speeches. This one of them mama speeches. When you know. You did it. And you're going to have to sit down and have this talk. He hadn't had this talk yet with the Lord. He hadn't been called into the principal's office yet. But when he saw Jesus, he was the one that ran to him, even though he was the one that denied him. And I want you to know, denial doesn't have to be permanent. After breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than these? There's debate about what that means because he was a fisherman and there's fish in front of them. He could have been asking him, Peter, do you love the new life that I'm trying to give you more than you love the old life that you ran back to because you weren't following me close enough? There could be some truth in that. I believe the structure of the sentence is more pointing to the people around him. Plus, it makes for a way tougher sting. Simon, Peter, son of John, do you love me more than these other men right here? They all say they love me. None of them denied me. You asked my father to curse you rather than to openly tell the man that you knew me. They didn't do that. He was sitting next to John, John who showed up at the cross. Jesus said, Simon, do you love me more than these other men love me? How hard with dirt on him do you think it was to have this conversation? How hard with shame on him? Do you think it was for him to have this conversation? So let me tell you something about leadership. The person doing the leading is the one getting all the bullets thrown at him. All the rocks getting thrown at the dude living in the glass house. Simon had been following the Lord for about 20 months. Hard. Leading. Publicly succeeding. Publicly failing. All the dudes that were jealous of him. Because there's jealousy in ministry. I don't know. But how many of y'all think that sometimes when a leader falls, some of his friends and co-leaders and buddies are glad to see him get what he's got coming? I've heard it so many times. I knew he was fake. I knew he was phony. He's going to get what he's got coming to him. The Bible says that's not a Christian attitude. So on display in front of these other ten disciples, Jesus said, do you love me more than John does? Do you love me more than Andrew does? Do you love me more than James loves me? Simon, do you love me more than the rest of these people love me? Peter said, yes, Lord. Can you even imagine how tough that must have been for him to say that in front of all those men that could say, really? Really? You love him more than I do? After what you've done, the whole city knows what you've done. We didn't do what you did. You're the only coward that turned your back on him. You denied him. We didn't follow close, but we didn't deny him. You love him more than me? Yes, Lord. You know I love him. Jesus didn't criticize him. Jesus didn't bring up his past. Jesus didn't work him over it. Jesus didn't tell him "Then sit on the front row for nine months and maybe I'll let you serve me again. He said, okay, and feed my lambs. That's what Jesus told him. Now, see, I want you to notice that he did not say, do you love preaching more then all the rest of this stuff. He said, do you love me? He didn't say, do you love my sheep? He didn't say, do you love my lambs? He didn't say, do you love singing in the choir? He didn't say, do you love having a position at the church? He didn't say, do you love people know your name? He didn't say, do you love the gifting and the talents that I've given you? Do you love me? The cure for Christianity in 2016 is falling in love with Jesus. Not church, not ministry, not how good you are at what you do. That's never what God is going to ask you. Do you love Jesus? Verse 16, having already pointed out that many people love ministry more than the master, Jesus repeats the question, Simon Son of John. Now, this is tough. I mean, there's so much I could preach. I'm trying to get you out of here. You know what Peter's name was before Jesus took him under his wing? Simon. But he told him, I'm going to call you Peter. But now he's back to calling him Simon. See, because there's a little Simon in all of us. There's a little old stuff in all of us. There's a little left over in All of us. He said, Simon, son of John. He didn't say Peter, apostle of the Lord. He said it again, do you love me? Now, some commentators say that there was different words used here for the word love, the English word loves in both places. Some say that one time he used the word phileo. One time he used the word agape. Agape means do you really love me at the highest level, more than everything? Second time, some people believe he asked, Do you even love me like a friend? I don't think it's nearly as important to know the nuance of the meaning of the word love that he chose as it is for us to recognize that the love that Jesus has for us is so deep that when, when Peter was being mocked by his own friends and torturing himself in his own soul. Because three times he denied Jesus. Jesus let him confess his love for him three times to try to erase that pain. He comes back and he says "The second time, do you love me? Yes, Lord, Peter said, you know I love you. Then take care of my sheep. No condemnation, no qualification, no set aside, no let me take five years to get myself together. Let me just try to work me out. Then maybe I can come back and be who God wants me to be. Verse 17, a third time, he asked him, Simon, son of John. See, Peter, at this point, he just wants a hug. He wants Jesus to call him Peter. third time Simon son of John do you love me and get this and I'm gonna let you go Peter was hurt that Jesus asked the question a third time he's already humiliated he's already failed he knows he failed he knows everybody knows he failed he knows everybody at that fire thinks they're better than him He knows everybody in ministry thinks he's worthless. He's already answered the question twice, a third time. He asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt that Jesus asked the question a third time. And he said this. Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said, then feed my sheep. I want you to know that no matter how much church people look down their nose at you, no matter how much guilt you could ever feel, no matter how much embarrassment you could have, you need to rejoice in the fact that if in your heart you love God more than people think you do, you need to rejoice in the fact that if you know you love God in the deepest part of you, that no matter what the world sees you as, that Jesus knows everything. He knows. So you can fool some of the people some of the time, but you can't fool Jesus. We got people serving in ministry that, that half flaky and faking it in every church in America. And then we got other people who are torturing themselves in the pews, wondering how they can keep doing what they're doing. Realize this, the Lord knows your love for him. No matter what your family thinks, no matter what the people that sit on the row, how could I show my face again? Because Jesus knows. He knows who loves him and who doesn't. He went on in verse 18. He says, I tell you the truth, when you were young, you were able to do as you liked. You dressed yourself. You went wherever you wanted to go. But when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands and others will dress you and take you where you don't want to go. This is the prophecy of they were going to strip him naked and drag him to the cross. See, because Peter's confession the whole time was, I love you more than everybody, and I'm the one that will die for you. And Jesus knew that. And he knew that he had put that courage in Peter. And he knew that was going to happen, so he lets him know. Verse 19, Jesus said this to let him know by what kind of death he would glorify God. Then Jesus told him, follow me we got so much bad teaching in the world today. I don't have time today or in my lifetime to sort it out. But everybody lying on TV, talking about the devil took them out before it was time. Everybody lying on TV saying late in the midnight hour, God's going to turn it around. This cancer shall not, no weapon. Listen, Jesus told his follower the mouthpiece of the first church. You're going to die a death that's going to glorify the Father. Not the devil's going to sneak you out early. Not you're going to have, be ripped out from the, the, the church before your time. No, God's got a plan for all of us. And it's not just the happy things that glorify God. It didn't make anybody happy to see Peter crucified. Except the enemies of God. But Jesus said that it glorified God. Then Jesus told him, follow me. It's a four-hour message in those two words. I'm going to give you an easy test and I'm going to let you get out of here. Last two words on this screen say what? Based on what I'm setting you up to pass this test, what do you think the first two words Jesus ever said to Peter was? His mess-up didn't change God's plan for his life. His shame didn't change God's plan for his life. What those other people sitting around that fire thought about him didn't change God's plan for his life. His mistakes and his frailty did not change the love Jesus has for him or the plan Jesus has for him. And for me and for you and for everybody who ever wanted to follow him, His word is still the same today. Follow me. Stop going fishing, son. Don't do that. I called you away from that. Follow me. Stop going back and follow me. Stop beating yourself up and follow me. Stop caring what these other people think about you and follow me. Verse 20, Peter turned around and saw behind them the disciple Jesus loved. John, the one that they all knew, was the Lord's ace. Peter was the vocal leader, but John was the ace. The one who had leaned over to Jesus during supper and asked, Lord, who will betray you? Verse 21, Peter asked Jesus, what about him? You just told me I'm going to die, be crucified. I didn't even have the courage to say I knew you a couple of days ago. Now you're telling me I'm going to follow you and I'm going to die for you? In the most horrific, torturous way? What about him? What about your ace? What about the teacher's pet? What's your plan for him? And Jesus replied, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? As for you, follow me. The Lord is no respecter of persons. He don't have to treat one one way and another another way. He treats us all the same. See, this is where the enemy wants to get you tripped up. What about that person? What about that person? What's going to happen to them? You're letting me come back and follow you? What about them? They they messed up too? Don't worry about them. Follow me. Stop worrying about church folk and start worrying about Jesus. Stop following the crowd and start following Jesus. What does it matter? How good or how bad? Well, I just don't think it's fair that my brother gets something with my cousin. Stop worrying about what's happening to other people and get on with it. Get on with it. Get on with the following Him. That's what he says from day one to the end. It's easy to see Peter's mistakes. He was too scared. He boasted too much. He prayed too little. He acted too fast, and he followed at a distance when he should have been following closely. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon said this Mankind is feeble. Mankind is frail, and mankind is prone to failure. And that's what we are. We are feeble, frail, and prone to failing. I like that contemporary song that says, We fall down, we get up. Because Proverbs twenty four sixteen says that a just man falls seven times but gets back up again. Falling down is not failing. Staying down is failing. Falling down is not failing. Quitting, following Him, that's failing. Follow Him. If you've been doing great, follow Him. If you've been struggling, follow Him. If you've been flat out, follow Him. He always takes us back. Too many people have backslid and backslid and backslid, but never tried real hard to front slide. I want you to front slide today. I want you to move from the distance and move back up close and follow Him. we got to stop letting our failures drive us back to our old way of living. That's why God let us see this. He went back to what he was comfortable with. Because Christianity was being tough on him. Life was being tough on him. Stress was on him. So he went back to something that God delivered him from. Don't do that. When we fail, we need to run to God. When we succeed, we need to run to God. When we're stressed out, we need to run to God. When we're hurting, we need to run to God. When we're happy, we need to run to God. On good days, bad days, happy days, and sad days, we need to run to God because nothing else is real but God. God said that His very name is a strong tower that you can run to Him and be safe. All these other places mean you no good. Go back to following Him. I believe medical Metaphorically, he's sitting by a fire with some fish for you, ready to feed you, ready to welcome you to his table. No condemnation, no requirement, no hoops to jump through. Come on, dude, let's just go. Let's just do this. Let's just, you follow me. Past failures hurt us so bad in so many ways. They, past failures, allow unresolved unresolved past failures prevent us from going on with God don't do that restoration from past failures doesn't always result in removal of consequences you go out and do something wrong get in a car wreck chop one of your children's arms off in a a drunken stupor don't ask God to grow that arm back he's not going to He could, but he probably won't. Why? Because our sin does have consequences, but it doesn't prevent us from moving forward with God. Past failures bring guilt and condemnation. That's not what God wants for your life. It's a big difference between conviction and condemnation. Conviction is specific. God says you should not have done that thing. That thing was wrong condemnation is general it says you're wrong you're no good you're a failure you see the holy spirit brings conviction but the devil brings condemnation and if you feel bad about an event that you did in your life that's conviction from the lord apologize for that repent of that and move forward but if you feel bad about who you are that's condemnation from the devil and you need to cast that down you need to dust your feet off from that, and you need to say, I know I love God, and God knows I love him, and I am going to follow him all the days of my life. Maybe I'll fall down, but I'll get up, and I'll never stop following my Jesus. I hope you'll remember this. Failure doesn't have to be final. Put all your trust in Jesus. give you one last verse. Two minutes and I'm done. Luke twenty two thirty two. 32. For anybody who's ever failed, and that's all of us. Jesus said to Peter, knowing what was going to happen, knowing he was going to fail, knowing he was going to feel horrible, but I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. Listen, front slide, follow Jesus so God can use you to help us. Front slide, follow Jesus. He's prayed not that you won't go through. We have to go through. He's prayed not that you won't fail. We are going to fail. But after you fail... He's prayed that your faith will remain. And when you come through something and God strengthens you on the other side, you got a testimony for God's glory. That test can build a testimony or you can let the devil use it to condemn you and destroy your life forever. I choose Jesus. I choose to know that he knows everything. He knows we love him. If we do. So let's follow him. Pray with me. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your unfailing love. Thank you for never giving up on us. Thank you for letting us follow you. God, I pray for every person in this room who would be condemned by the devil. That today you would assure them of your love. That you would assure them of your unconditional, unwavering, everlasting love. Strengthen us, God. Use us to strengthen each other. Thank you for tests that build a testimony. Lord, I pray that you would help us to follow you all the days of our life, recognizing that you're the only true God. We love you, and we're glad that you know it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We truly appreciate the opportunity to pour into your lives each week. For more information or to donate to Abundant Lives Ministry, please check out our website at www.alcfnow.org.